Section 20 of Letters of Mrs. Adams, Volume 1, by Charles Francis Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Section 20, The Memoir, Part 6. Mrs. Adams felt, as women only feel, what she regarded as the ungenerous conduct of Mr. Jefferson toward her husband during the latter part of his public life and when she retired from Washington, notwithstanding the kindest professions from his mouth were yet ringing in her ears, all communication between the parties ceased. Still, there remained on both sides pleasant reminiscences to soften the irritation that had taken place, and to open a way for reconciliation whenever circumstances should prevent a suitable opportunity. The little daughter of Mr. Jefferson, in whom Mrs. Adams had taken so much interest in 1787, had, in the interval, grown into a woman and had been married to Mr. Epps of Virginia. In 1804 she ceased to be numbered among the living. The intelligence of her death revived all the kind feelings that long had been smothered in the breast of Mrs. Adams, and impelled her, almost against her judgment, to pen the short letter of condolence to the lady's father, which makes the first of the series now submitted to the public. Mr. Jefferson appears to have been much affected by this testimony of her sympathy. He replied, but not confining himself to the subject matter of her letter, he added a request to know her reasons for the estrangement that had occurred. These reasons were given in the letters that follow, now and then, betraying a little of the asperity to which the contest had given birth on each side. The correspondence ended without entire satisfaction to either. It appears, from Mr. Jefferson's statement, afterwards made in a letter to Dr. Rush, that he did not choose at first to believe Mrs. Adams's assertion that she had written to him without the knowledge of her husband. It further appears that, without any new evidence upon which to found a change of opinion, he afterwards convinced himself that what she had written was true. Fortunately, the original endorsement made in the handwriting of Mr. Adams upon the copy of the last of the letters retained by herself will serve to put this matter beyond question. Readers will be apt to judge of the reasoning contained in the correspondence according to the political prepossessions they may happen to entertain. But, whichsoever way they may incline, one thing they will all be glad to know, and of that they may be assured, namely, that the argument of Mrs. Adams was entirely her own. If it were not for this certainty, a great deduction would be necessary from the interest that must now be felt in her part of the correspondence. As the letters of a man trained in the discipline and logic of the schools, they would make but a poor figure against the plausible and adroit special pleading of the opposing party. But when viewed as the simple offspring of good sense and right feeling, combining in a woman to form just as well as straightforward conclusions upon the most difficult public questions, they are not without their value even though set in contrast to the polished productions of so celebrated a writer as Mr. Jefferson. It has been already remarked that the correspondence ended without appearing to produce any favorable effect in restoring the parties to their pristine 
cordiality. The principal reason for this probably was that Mr. Jefferson was still President of the United States, and that a change then brought about in consequence of a step first taken by Mrs. Adams might have subjected her conduct to the possibility of misconstruction. This her spirit would never have willingly submitted to. Perhaps the same consideration had its effect upon the general tone of her letters, which is not so conciliatory as, from other parts of her character, one might be led to expect. It was felt to be not so by Mr. Jefferson, who considered it as having interposed a new barrier to reconciliation, rather than as having removed the old ones. But such did not prove its ultimate effect. The parties relapsed into silence for a time, it is true, but there is evidence that they again began to think kindly of each other, and when they had come once more upon equal terms, by the retirement of Mr. Jefferson from public life, Dr. Rush, a common friend, found no great difficulty in removing all obstacles to a renewed communication. A correspondence was again established, which gradually improved into something of the ancient kindliness. But Mrs. Adams appears to have taken no part in it, and it may be doubted whether it was before the beautiful letter of condolence written to him by Mr. Jefferson upon the news of her decease, that the heart of Mr. Adams softened into perfect cordiality towards his ancient and his successful opponent. From the year 1801 down to the day of her death, which happened on the 28th of October, 1818, she remained uninterruptedly at home in Quincy. This period furnishes abundance of familiar letters. Her interest in public affairs did not cease with the retirement of her husband. She continued to write to her friends her free opinions, both of men and measures, perhaps with a more sustained hand on account of the share her son was then taking in politics. But these letters bring us down to times so recent, and they contain so many allusions to existing persons and matters of domestic and wholly private nature, that they are not deemed suitable for publication, at least at present. On some accounts this is perhaps to be regretted, None of her letters present a more agreeable picture of life or a more characteristic idea of their author than these. The old age of Mrs. Adams was not one of grief and repining, of clouds and darkness. Her cheerfulness continued, with the full possession of her faculties, to the last, and her sunny spirit enlivened the small social circle around her, brightened the solitary hours of her husband, and spread the influence of its example over the town where she lived. Yesterday, she writes to a granddaughter on the 26th of October, 1814, yesterday completes half a century since I entered the married state, then just your age. I have great cause of thankfulness that I have lived so long and enjoyed so large a portion of happiness as has been my lot. The greatest source of unhappiness I have known in that period has arisen from the long and cruel separations which I was called, in time of war and with a young family around me, to submit to. Yet she had not been without her domestic afflictions. A daughter lost in infancy, 
a son grown up to manhood who died in 1800, and 13 years afterwards, the death of her only remaining daughter, the wife of Colonel W. S. Smith, furnished causes of deep and severe grief, which threw a shadow of sadness over the evening of her life. But they produced no permanent gloom, nor did they prevent her from enjoying the consolations to be found in gratitude to the divine being for the blessings that still remained to her. She was rewarded for the painful separation from her eldest son when he went abroad in the public service under circumstances which threatened a long absence by surviving the whole period of eight years that it lasted and witnessing his return to receive from the chief magistrate-elect, Mr. Monroe, the highest testimony he could give him of his confidence. This was the fulfillment of the wish nearest to her heart. The letters addressed to him when a youth, which have been admitted into this volume, will abundantly show the deep interest she had felt in his success. His nomination as Secretary of State was the crowning mercy of her life. Had she survived the attack of the fever which proved fatal, it is true that she might have seen him exalted still higher to that station which her husband and his father had held before him. But it is very doubtful whether her satisfaction would have been at all enhanced. The commencement of Mr. Monroe's administration was marked by a unanimity of the popular voice, the more gratifying to her because it was something so new. Later times have only carried us back to party divisions, of the bitterness of which she had during her lifetime tasted too largely to relish even the little of sweet which they might have to give. The obsequies of Mrs. Adams were attended by a great concourse of people, who voluntarily came to pay this last tribute to her memory. Several brief but beautiful notices of her appeared in the newspapers of the day, and a sermon was preached by the late Reverend Dr. Kirkland, then president of Harvard University, which closed with a delicate and affecting testimony to her worth. Ye will seek to mourn, bereaved friends, it says, as becomes Christians in a manner worthy of the person you lament. You do then, bless the giver of life, that the course of your endeared and honored friend was so long and so bright, that she entered so fully into the spirit of those injunctions which we have explained, and was a minister of blessing to all within her influence. You are soothed to reflect that she was sensible of the many tokens of divine goodness which marked her lot, that she received the good of her existence with a cheerful and grateful heart that, when called to weep, she bore adversity with an equal mind, that she used the world as not abusing it to excess, improving well her time, talents, and opportunities, and, though desired longer in this world, was fitted for a better happiness than this world can give. It often happens that, when the life of a woman is the topic of discussion, men think it necessary either to fall into a tone of affected gallantry and unmeaning compliment or to assume the extreme of unnatural and extravagant eulogy yet there seems no reason in the nature of things why the same laws of composition should not be made to apply to the one sex as to the other 
it has been the wish of the editor to avoid whatever might be considered as mere empty praise of his subject, in which, if he has not altogether succeeded, some allowance may, it is hoped, be made for the natural bias under which he writes. It has been his purpose to keep far within the line marked out by the great master of composition, who, in allusion to the first instance in Rome when a woman, Popilia, was publicly praised by her son Catullus, defines the topics which may be treated with propriety upon any similar occasion. He does not claim for the letters now published to the world that they are models of style, though in behalf of some of them such a claim might, perhaps, be reasonably urged, nor yet that they contain much novel or important historical information. What merits they may have will be found in the pictures of social life which they present, during a period daily becoming more interesting as it recedes from us, and in the high moral and religious tone which uniformly pervades them. They are here given to the public exactly as they were written, with only those corrections or omissions which were absolutely necessary, either to perfect the sense or to avoid subjects exclusively personal. It was the habit of the writer to make first a rough draft of what she intended to say, and from this to form a fair copy for her correspondent. But in the process she altered so much of the original that in every instance where the two have been compared they are by no means the same thing. Only in one or two cases, and for particular reasons, has the loss of the real letter been supplied by the first draft. The principal difference between them ordinarily is that the former is much the most full. Frequently it will be seen that she did not copy, the task being, as she testifies in the postscript, extremely irksome to her. The value attached to her letters by some of her correspondents, even during her lifetime, was so considerable that it produced from one of them, the late Judge Vanderkemp of New York, a request that a collection should then be made for publication. In allusion to this, Mrs. Adams writes in a note to a female friend, The President has a letter from Vanderkemp in which he proposes to have him send a collection of my letters to publish. A pretty figure I should make. No, no, I have not any ambition to appear in print. Heedless and inaccurate as I am, I have too much vanity to risk my reputation before the public. And on the same day she replied to Judge Vanderkemp as follows. Quincy, 24 January, 1818. My dear sir, when President Monroe was in Boston upon his late tour, encompassed by citizens, surrounded by the military, harassed by invitations to parties, and applications innumerable for office, some gentlemen asked him if he was not completely worn out, to which he replied, Oh, no, a little flattery will support a man through great fatigue. I may apply the observation to myself, and say that the flattery in your letter leads me to break through the aversion which is daily increasing upon me to writing. You terrify me, my dear sir, when you ask for letters of mine to publish. It is true that Dr. Disney, to whom the late Mr. Hollis bequeathed his property, found amongst his papers some letters from the President and from me, which he asked 
permission to publish. We had both forgotten the contents of them, but left them to his judgment to do with them as he pleased, and accordingly he published some of them. One other letter to my son, when he first went to France in the year 1778, by some means or other, was published in an English magazine, and those, I believe, are all the mighty works of mine which ever have, or will, by my consent, appear before the public. Style I never studied. My language is warm from the heart and faithful to its fires, the spontaneous effusions of friendship. As such, I tender them to Mr. Vanderkemp, sure of his indulgence, since I make no pretensions to the character which he professes to fear, that of a learned lady. These observations are strictly true. To learning, in the ordinary sense of that term, Mrs. Adams could make no claim. Her reading had been extensive in the lighter departments of literature, and she was well acquainted with the poets in her own language. But it went no further. It is the soul shining through the words that gives to them their great attraction, the spirit ever equal to the occasion, whether a great or a small one, a spirit inquisitive and earnest in the little details of life, as when she was in France and England, playful when she describes daily duties, but rising to the call when the roar of cannon is in her ears, or when she reproves her husband for not knowing her better than to think her a coward and to fear telling her bad news, or when she warns her son that she would rather he had found his grave in the ocean or that any untimely death should crop him in his infant years than see him an immoral, profligate, or graceless child. In conclusion, and in order to avoid the possibility of misconstruction, it is proper to state that for the selection which has now been made, and for the sentiments expressed by the editor, he is exclusively responsible. He has consulted with no person in the progress of his duty. Hence, if it should be thought that errors of judgment have been committed, the fault must be held to lie wholly with him. The individuals in whose hands are the letters from which this compilation has been made furnished them to him at his request, without limitation or restriction, for which manifestation of their confidence in him he begs leave thus publicly to express his gratitude. Among those persons he would make known his obligations particularly to Mrs. John Greenleaf of Quincy and Mrs. Felt of Boston, respectively daughters of the two sisters of Mrs. Adams, Mrs. C. A. DeWint of Fishkill, New York, the daughter of Mrs. W. S. Smith, and Mrs. and Miss Quincy of Cambridge. It is hardly necessary to add that to his father, John Quincy Adams, and to the widow of his uncle, the late Judge Thomas B. Adams, he is indebted for the opportunity of freely examining and using the great mass of papers in their possession. It was the fortune of the editor to know the subject of his memoir only during the last year of her life, and when he was too young fully to comprehend the worth of her character. But it will be a source of unceasing gratification to him, as long as he lives, 
that he has been permitted to pay this small tribute, however inadequate, to her memory. Note, the following letter is the one alluded to in the memoir. Thomas Jefferson to John Adams. Monticello, 13 November, 1818. The public papers, my dear friend, announced the fatal event of which your letter of October the 20th had given me ominous foreboding. Tried myself in the school of affliction by the loss of every form of connection which can rive the human heart, I know well and feel what you have lost, what you have suffered, are suffering, and have yet to endure. The same trials have taught me that for ills so immeasurable, time and silence are the only medicine. I will not, therefore, by useless condolences, open afresh the sluices of your grief, nor, although mingling sincerely my tears with yours, will I say a word more where words are vain, but that it is of some comfort to us both, that the term is not very distant at which we are to deposit in the same cerement our sorrows and suffering bodies, and to ascend in essence to an ecstatic meeting with the friends we have loved and lost, and whom we shall still love and never lose again. God bless you and support you under your heavy affliction. Thomas Jefferson End of Section 20 End of Letters of Mrs. Adams, Volume 1 by Charles Francis Adams